unfortunately, it's me again. So it's, uh, it's very terrible because all of these concepts are really interesting. And so I said, everyone will be asking, how do you do this? What are the mechanics? And so I said, I'll present all the concepts and then we can lead so that we can be free to answer, uh, to have a proper discussion about, you know, the, the kind of why you're doing this and what you saw that was interesting about it. So let's start with community circles. Santosh, Santosh foolishly said yes to running this when we approached him and said, are you interested to run community circles? Uh, Siu Yen is from NVPC. She participated in giving circles. And uh, Nandita from Sinda also foolishly said, yes, let's try learning circles. All, all these are circles, right? So let's, let's run through very quickly and then we'll hear from them. This was the origin. I saw this, I said, wow, Community Circles UK, what is this? Create opportunities for people to come together and help each other have better and more connected lives. Such a broad, abstract thing, right? But actually, it's a simple concept. You just form a small group of people, volunteers, neighbours, friends, around someone who needs help. And circles have been formed in the UK to support people with chronic health issues, uh, people with disabilities, etc. And used across a right range of purposes. You know, people want to cope with their illnesses, they want to get a job. Some of them even just want to, I want to sing in a choir, you know, something like that. Um, the distinctive features, though, is that the person receiving support articulates their long-term goals and ad hoc needs. Maybe my longer-term goal is to get a job, but right now I need somebody to provide uh, childminding for me, etc. So there's a mix of that. And then the group will discuss, you know, how they can help. And a facilitator, like Santosh, would distribute the tasks. Uh, typically made up of a small group, five to seven, approximately, can be less, can be more. And it's facilitated and structured, which is quite different. There are routine meetups, tasks distributed to individuals, and actions are actually reviewed. Um, so these are the models of care, right? We have um, caregiving. The benefits of that is it's your family, intimate, right? You understand each other, you care but the burden of care is also big. Professional help is the expert knowledge that is brought to the care that your family or volunteers may not have, right? You, sometimes you need a psychiatrist or a counsellor or a psychologist, but there's professional distance. It's also more transactional. You know, you don't show up unless you get paid. Befriending is kind of informal support and you have a relationship, so Lions Befriender, you show up for a senior's home, but the responsibility of that relationship is typically on one person. Uh, peer support is where people who share a similar set of uh, experiences come together and you, you uh, uh, but there's also the lack of diversity in that, right? Because you're all people who have gone through the similar experience. So community circles is slightly different. So as I looked at it, it, it felt like a gap in our landscape of care. It's structured and action-oriented. You distribute responsibilities and you have diversity which brings strength. But also questionably whether, you know, is there less emotional investment in it? Um, so the significance is that it allows the person to identify goals meaningful to them. You bring in broader range of skills. Uh, and I kind of felt that if you asked me to be a befriender, I would say no. But you ask me, let's say, uh, Santosh is supporting a caregiver of a person with special needs. Show up once a month, one hour a month. And in between, see what you can do. I would show up for that because it doesn't feel as scary. And it's, I can calibrate my distance or proximity to the family, right? I don't have to be best friends. Santosh will give me some tasks. Uh, maybe I just want to drive the kid to, to a medical appointment. I would do that. But some others who really want to be friends, they will read to the children and all that. Then they become closer. So you can decide how far or close you want to be to the family. But it's also a kind of, kind of interesting uh, consequence that you have the lateral relationships amongst the people that connect with one another. Um, if we form a circle and, it, oh, Nandita said really something really interesting. You know, I benefit from that. 
even though the direction of support is towards the person at the centre. So in my mind, it feels like a structured kampong. I'm not sure if that's the right way to think about it, where neighbourliness and focus help is semi-formally organised instead of totally organised. Um, this is what the artists do, right, as a kind of a parallel. Um, this is an artist-led social technology. You form three people meet on a regular basis, and one person supposed to, you know, like, okay, like Nandita's the centre of support. I ask you about uh, your social uh, issues, and Suyen asks you about your health, and <laughs> Santosh asks you about your economic issues, and then you teach us how to provide you with care. And then once you're ready, I will form three other people to support me. And then after that, the three other people will form three other people. So the artists have interesting ways of doing things like that, right? If you're going to read the website, uh, because they're artists, it reads like that. And, uh, but the mechanism of change here is a viral means of social change. So it occurs to me that all of the circles that we do could potentially have a viral mechanism of change, a circle forming other circles. And that's kind of interesting to, to think about. Uh, giving circles, um, same, like community circles, but give money. Give money is the first primary thing you do first before you do anything else. And some circles form just to give money and the family didn't really want to meet and didn't really want any support. But her circle, I mean, Suhen, uh, we'll talk about yours, you was like super, super hero, right? So this is a, uh, this is a collaboration between MVPC and all of us, but also with Minds and Shine that uh, referred uh, people who were recipients. And so this is the headline. And once you have a headline, so that's her. Once you have a headline like that, right, you feel kind of torn because like no one has helped us so much before. What a powerful headline, but also very scary because I don't think every circle will be like that. This gives you a lot of pressure, right, that, oh, circles are going to be wonderful, but it will not always be wonderful. Uh, but I think largely it's wonderful here, largely because of the kind of resources and energy that specific circle and the people in that circle has brought to bear. Um, the significance to me for giving circles is it democratizes philanthropy. You don't have to be rich. You can give $200, $300 a month for six months, for a year. You can give, and you're not giving to an organization who then decides what to do with your money. It's a direct giving, and you see what your money is doing to the family, and you feel connected to the family. Right, they're buying diapers, they are you know, spending on etc. And you know exactly what your money is being used for. Secondly, it also deprofessionalizes, or should I say it humanizes social support in the sense that it flexibly fills in gaps of social services. Communities can and should be as generous as they want to be. Right? In fact, a lot of the people who signed up said, I want to give more than $200, can or not? Sure, <laughs> no one's going to say no. But of course, our government has to be as fiscally prudent as possible. That's public money. Public money, be fiscally prudent and responsible. But guess what? Communities can be as irresponsible as possible, right? As generous as you want to be, which is kind of cool. And also, there's less of that conditional support. Instead of, come, we'll help you, but we need to fix you. Uh, in fact, we, we also went to Scotland and, and learned from this uh, uh, homeless organisation who managed to arrive at a point where they said, come as you are and stay as long as you like, which is entirely different from how we approach homeless shelters here. Now, a lot of people got offended at that. I mean, I'm half torn, like, should you do that or should you not? But I'm realising that that's community logic at play, right? You can, 
It's your prerogative, right? It's your money, it's your time. And also, when we look at giving circles, everyone's looking at the recipient family, but actually, I'm also looking at the givers. People like you and me in this room, middle class, not necessarily, well, some of us are very wealthy. Most of us are middle. And actually, it is the giving and then the implications of your giving. I have self-indulgent friends who will go eat at Michelin star restaurants. And I'm thinking, I go with them and I feel I have wasted my money <laughs> because we could have had the same experience at a hawker center. Okay, la, aircon, la, kopitiam, right? And i rather give the money away to somebody who actually needs it. If you go read Peter Singer's essay then, his, and this is something that we want to act upon, the middle class givers, right? At some point, Peter Singer said, there's a famine in Ethiopia, and if you don't donate money, it is about the same thing as walking by a child who's drowning and then doing nothing about it and going to work and said, hey, there's a child drowning, what did you do? Nothing. But you could have done something. But people feel that they don't have to. So that's kind of an interesting philosophical experience. I don't have time to get into it. But there is an intention to act upon not just the recipients, but the givers themselves. Um, learning circles. So this one actually came from, we're doing uh, work with Cinda. We hope everyone else can consider it in CDAC or Mandaki in a learning by doing phase. The base concept actually came out of a design thinking process in Beyond Social Services, Rangas in the room, and uh, I, I supported that uh, design project. Um, and the background is, you know, students don't enjoy, oh, you can ask the students here, like, do you enjoy learning? Or are you just doing it because you want to get a good job and get a wonderful life? At the same time, tuition is a billion-dollar industry profiting from an educational ecosystem where the teacher's role in school no longer enough. And parents, my wife included, feels that they got to learn the curriculum from school. Then you come home, I teach you. Then you create more school at home. Um, so we fight about that. And then, <laughs> It's exacerbated for the working class. The culture of school marginalizes the life experiences of working class families, tuition is costly, etc. So what we've learned so far is this, and so this is why we're doing this. It's basically self-directed peer learning groups supported, not by tutors, but by learning enablers or facilitators. And I'm going to share the broader concept because we couldn't do the, this to me is the romantic larger concept that came out right, but nobody could do it. And the reason why I want to go to some detail for doing this is because it actually is the seed of systemic change uh, if you do it this way, because there's community involvement. So the base concept is this. You form, you know, five youth form study group. I don't know about you, but when I was in school, I was good friends with my good friends and classmates, but my study was an individual struggle. We never helped each other out that way. My, my, I do well in my test, good for me. You do badly, too bad for you. How much do we help each other? Never. Why not? Learning should be a collaborative exercise, right? So what if we form a group? And then monk, uh, because low-income uh, neighborhoods, the kids don't necessarily have a space. So Monday, you go to Uncle Tan's house. Uncle Tan open up the house, switch on aircon, give you tea and biscuits. And then Tuesday, you go to somebody else's house, and they do the same, right? Just neighbors, right? And Thursdays... And then the math enabler or the learning facilitator doesn't give you the tenure series. They talk to you about things like that, right? How, how to learn how to learn, you know? <laughs> learning how to learn or the pleasure of finding things out. Stuff that the school doesn't have the time or the patience to, to, to go through. And, and um, maybe on Thursday, instead of a 
topic uh, of academic curriculum, you can go to issues that the community cares about. It could be, you know, maybe you're interested to set up a business, you care about climate change, or maybe there, you know, there's illegal money lending in your neighborhood and you want to understand that. And so what you formed is actually you would have introduced uh, a lot of responsible adults in the lives of these kids, right? You have your learning enablers, but you also have neighborhood hosts, and the whole thing is the learning circle in the original concept. And there are check-ins and check-outs whereby you can talk about your painful relationship with your parents or your teachers, and then the host can, can be part of that conversation. Um, but all communities are only strong. All these are very small local, act local action, but they, can, they should be connected to a larger set of resources. How can small learning circles benefit from one another? If somebody found an interesting resource, maybe it can be compiled, and maybe it can be made available freely to others. Um, and know what about Friday? It would be beautiful if, let's say, the secondary one and two kids on Friday, they go and they become an enabler for math for the primary school group. Wouldn't that be a beautiful story? And so the significance of this is as such, I will not talk about it any much more. But what I wanted to do then is to go to all of you and first ask you the question of, why did you do this? <laughs> Shall I answer? Yeah, I'll start with uh, the answer to the question of why did I do this? Um, there are two things, two reasons, two main problems I wanted to tackle and I felt community circles is a model of care that could address these two problems. The first problem is the problem of large segments of society falling through the cracks. These are invisible, minority, marginalized segments of society that were falling through the cracks of society, especially during COVID. So I was part of a humanitarian organization, The Art of Living, and we were supporting migrant workers, our migrant brothers. Uh, three times a week, we delivered well-being services or programs for our migrant brothers. Uh, then we went on to our foreign domestic sisters or workers, and then healthcare workers, teachers. So there were several segments. There were also the elderly that were socially alienated, uh, struggling, uh, people unemployed, uh, struggling to make ends meet as well. So uh, this, is, this, is, this was the backdrop of uh, one of the reasons, yeah, context setting, right? So large segments of society just struggling to make ends meet, falling through the cracks. So this was one problem, and I thought community circles could solve this. The second one was um, developing a, an AI-powered platform called OP to actually mine citizens' in insights and sentiments. And, and in doing that, I realized that stratification was growing, and there were increasing tensions, uh, polarization and divisions across uh, a wide range of identity markers like race, religion, class, caste, SES, you name it. Yeah. And I could, I could see and quantify, and I can just monitor the fault lines. And I wanted a model of care to help address stratification or divisions in society. Yeah. So when you presented to me community circles, and that chart, that diagram, comparing different models of care, I felt that we could nail it. Like we could, we could solve people falling through the cracks. Problem number one, which is a problem of inclusion. 
Problem number two, increase divisions, which is the problem of cohesion. Yeah. So two problems, problem of inclusion and cohesion in society through the concept of community circles. So that was the, the, the main context or the two problems I wanted to solve. And when you shared this diagram with me, I felt, okay, I want to try. Yeah. Another reason is Justin being Justin. I am always inspired by Justin. Yeah, so <laughs> uh, I, uh, yeah, I couldn't say no. I, I, I really felt I wanted to try it. Yeah. Thanks. A lot of people who say yes to me always regret it after many of you have said that to me already. Over to you, Sirian. What did you do? Yeah, hi, morning. Uh, I'm Sirian from NVPC. So uh, when my colleague um, wanted to start a pilot project called The Giving Circle, and after understanding the concept, I thought, like, why not? Um, because I love to volunteer and... I've been going door to door to help like low-income families, um, and also I like to clarify like giving circle is not just about giving money; it's more than money. Otherwise, later on, you know, everybody will be running away from me, you know, <laughs> thinking I want to raise funds. Um, but I was thinking when we volunteer, we actually also enrich ourselves and 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 gain new knowledge and gain new network. And all of us sitting here, we have like a big network on like LinkedIn or you can say that, oh, you know, I know many people, but is your network a good network? Are we activating our network to do good? And is your network a powerful network? It is only powerful when we activate it to do good things and when we connect people together to impact lives. And so I thought like Giving Circle was an opportunity for me to connect people that I know to the community, bringing together different resources in addition to money. It can be a skill, it can be a product that eventually can help the community in need. So I, I can just say that, you know, one of the items that, you know, came uh, through was like, a, a, a curtain because the family that we were helping, you know, the husband was sleeping on the hospital bed and every day, like, the sun just comes shining through and it was very hot. And so she said, oh, can you uh, bring, a, 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 like, donate a curtain? So after I speak to the boss of a curtain company, he said, you know, I can donate that, you know, to, to, for the family. So then we're able to bring together different resources and people that we know that can help the family. It can be a skill, it can be someone with a specific knowledge to help the family in need. So that's the reason why I joined the Giving Circle, is to create opportunities for people to contribute and to help the community. Yeah. Hi, good morning. Uh, we piloted these uh, learning circles primarily to empower the students to take ownership of their learning. That was the primary objective. Because we are quite used to the models of tuitions and regular classrooms, but this was something beyond. So we just wanted to provide a conducive space with youth facilitators who can kind of motivate them to take ownership. So that was the rationale why we embarked on this journey. Thank you. Um, well, Santosh is done with the pilot, and MVPC is still doing it, and we, Cinda is still kind of starting out. 
maybe just to hear from you what are some of the more striking or memorable parts of your experience doing it? Uh, for me, it was a very humbling journey. Um, I didn't expect um, for things to turn out the way they turned out the moment reality uh, set in, uh, starting the circles. Um, two things, I think um, the caregivers were in extreme states of precarity. Uh, they really needed help. And secondly, uh, they were in like a, a state of like alienation from the rest of society that was difficult to even witness or or uh, or comprehend like emotionally for me uh so those were the two things like you know um yeah just dire uh state of precarity and secondly uh they were alienated from like a lot of their closest family members friends and colleagues yeah yeah, I think that was uh, like two very important observations. And when the community circles convened once a month for a period of twelve months, uh, I had one caregiver telling me like, "You're, you know, like, you're my only friend." Yeah, uh, a lot of like grieving, crying, and healing in the circles. Um, and then one of the. Um, so I was invited to the school of a caregiver's uh, child. I didn't know why was I invited, right? And then when the teacher and the social worker revealed to me that I was her only friend, then it struck me like, wow, we were like a very important source of social support for the caregivers. Yeah, so they were really struggling uh, financially, emotionally, socially, yeah, materially as well. Yeah, they needed, uh, they were like, yeah, psychologically they were burnt out they needed people to come in and to um, provide them with caregiver respite could you share a bit about you know when you approached the caregivers with this concept and also to the volunteers to come and support what was their response to it uh, it was a bit difficult to get volunteers to be honest uh, we broadcasted the the need for volunteers across our personal networks across social media, uh, I found a total of 14 volunteers to distribute across the eight. Uh, okay, I started with 11 circles, but uh, we reduced from 11 to nine when we officially started. We officially started with nine circles. So 14 like volunteers to distribute across the, the 11 uh, community circles. Uh, I think a volunteer shortage was like a, a real issue. So we started to deep dive. We, we started to ask the caregiver, uh, why can't you find volunteers by yourself? Yeah, and I think uh, it reflected a state of consciousness in our society in that actually people really feared the children of the caregivers. Yeah, I think uh, there was this fear and there was this stigma of caregivers, of persons with special needs, to an extent where uh, people weren't really like willing to offer time uh, to spend with a caregiver. I think secondly, something else I realized and I learned in the entire like uh, landscape of volunteering, some volunteering activities receive more media attention and thus more volunteers. Yeah, but caregivers of persons with special needs, right? Like it's just very little attention and thus uh, 
yeah, little like sensitization, little socialization to the rest of society. Yeah, as compared to let's say spending time with an elderly, going out for beach cleanups. Yeah, so I think like you can map out the landscape of volunteering in Singapore. Some just have like peaks, and other are like troughs. Yeah, and caregivers of persons with special needs really like uh, didn't have that same amount of recognition or attention as other volunteering uh, activities. Sirian, what's your experience so far of participating? Yeah, <clears throat> so Santosh Giving Circle cater to caregivers with special needs. So this this family that we're supporting, the mother is caring for a son with autism, and then she also has an ailing husband that's like bedridden, and then an 89-years-old mom. So as the sole caregiver, she's been under so much tremendous stress that she has thought of ending her life. And in a short uh, film that was uh, produced, you know, by, by Eight World, you know, she said that, I don't even have the rights to die. I don't even have the rights to commit suicide because if I die, what's going to happen to my family members? I mean, she's really depressed, but she really has no one to turn to. And the help given by the social worker because of the overwhelming number of cases, the, the social worker's not able to cater to all the needs, you know, and giving deep emotional support, you know, for her, you know. And, and then when she met the giving circle, all she wanted was like for people to come together to befriend the son, play with the son, so that, you know, the son feels engaged. And so before we know it, you know, the members of the giving circle, one lady, she brought along her daughter to play Monopoly with a boy. And they end up having, <coughs> sorry, <coughs> having a very special friendship. And the boy enjoyed it tremendously. And then other members of the giving circle started to sit down with the, the, the mother, Madam Chang, speak to her, listen to her. And then before we know it, you know, Every other session, we, we find her feeling like a lot happier. She's opening up. She's cracking jokes, you know. We, we didn't expect the giving circle to grow this way. <clears throat> so it came as a, a surprise to us, you know. <clears throat> it's a befriending. It's more than the money. It's actually the befriending, the human element of engaging, connecting, and listening to her. So that's, that's what really struck me the, the most in the last few months. Thanks, Yuan. And um, I remember asking some students at Cinda, what do yeah. you think about if you came and teach and learn from one another? They said, like, no way, I would never do that. It's so weird. Why they almost felt like they didn't have the right to teach one another. How's your experience so far? Okay. For us, um, we are so used to the pragmatic way on education. That is, you have structured programs and there is an end goal and everything. So this was a very, very different experience. So what happened was that uh, we had the youth facilitators as well as the students to co-create the program. We had a prototype. So they said they listened to what they wanted. In fact, they gave us ideas of how to sell that to their parents as well, that you should have some deliverables on subjects, some definitivity and things like that. So the key thing was they took ownership. How do they take ownership? Was because they co-created it. I think that was the biggest learning for us. Thank you. Um, we have some questions already. Uh, one of them is, when forming circles, how does it start and is there a coordinator? I guess 
Santosh had difficulty finding volunteers because it was informal through our own social networks. And MVPC, of course, have giving.sg, right? Then, you know, it was much easier for them. But in terms of um, a coordinator, Santosh was the facilitator and coordinator. And I think for giving circles, we haven't landed on whether there should be a formal facilitator for each circle. Now, maybe to share reflections on what is the role of a facilitator for these things? And uh, do you think it's possible to even form circles without facilitation that people just kind of naturally become a kampong on its own or not? Santosh. Uh, the answer to the second question is yes, it's definitely possible. Uh, facilitation just requires the human touch. Like, yeah, you just need to be <laughs> empathetic and sensitive. Uh, um, for me, the, the main ambit of community circles as highlighted in the Community Circles UK program was uh, it has to be structured and it has to be task-based. And I met none of those two requirements. Actually, it was completely unstructured and non-task-based. Yeah, so we realized, I mean, I started the first month trying to make a list of their long-term goals and objectives. I put them in a PowerPoint document. And then, you know, we did an envisioning exercise. This is how you want to be one year's time. And then uh, that plan failed miserably. Uh, from the second month onward, we changed course and we decided to focus on, on connection, on just building trust amongst the circle members. Yeah, and that trust-building process, I think what we aimed for was this, this word that came to my mind, which was attunement. Yeah, attunement means that my inner world is really felt and understood by other people in the circle. Yeah, and that attunement takes time. My, my inner world, my lived experiences, my feelings and my emotions, my struggles, is, is accurately mirrored and understood by the other circle members. When attunement happens that connection develops, then there's the trust. Then only magic can happen in terms of getting task uh, executed. Yeah. So that attunement for the different circles took, let's say, six to nine months, yeah, depending on how difficult the, the barriers were uh, in terms of like the, the, the relational um, the, 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 the relational barriers were between the circle members. Yeah, so I think that was one major like, insight for me. Thanks. Suhan, your circle seems to have taken off quite quickly and people are close and contributing. Yes. What do you think is the role of a... Um, so the giving circle now, we are like, you know, in, started like two to three months. So initially when people, the volunteers come together, everyone, you know, maybe we even need to start get, getting to know one another. And so the group chat could be relatively like quiet and polite. Nobody really wants to, you know, make a lot of noise. So it really does help if there can be kind of a lead a volunteer so that, you know, can do the kind of warm things up to bridge people together. And it, and it so happened that, you know, I was fortunate that I actually invited two of my friends. So I went to my social media making use of my network, and I invited my friends to join me in the giving circle. And two of my friends actually um, signed up. And we come together, we, we, they were in the same circle as me. And because of that, there's a warmer relationship. And when you volunteer with your friends, things are slightly different, you know. You tend to be more communicative, and you know the resources that each other can bring to the table. So I think it does help 
if we can consider to have friends or people who know one another to form the giving circle and I can say that, you know, it does create wonders, you know, because you tend to communicate with one another and then soon, you know, before we know it, people were warming up, you know, that we bring other, we were talking to other volunteers and then magic happens and people start bringing in their other friends, other resources to come in and play games and befriend the family. So I think we can do consider having friends to come together to form giving circle, people who enjoy interacting with one another. I think that will make the, the, the circle a bit more powerful. Yeah. It sounds like Santosh and I have the wrong friends. If you try to bring them in, then, oh, not free, very busy. Then you bring them, they want to come, right? <laughs> it's true. It's like lawyers and academics, all that. It's like, oh, I don't think this is for me. That's what they say to me. What's your experience, Dandita? Um, I think facilitators hold the key for the learning circles, at least in our experience. We were looking for uh, people who were young, so youth primarily, but we were lucky to tap on the Sinda Youth Club volunteers. So what we did was we had a chat with uh, some of the youth who were interested to look into whether they had some uh, you know, prior facilitation experience, interest in uh, education, as well as the key thing was the alignment with the costs. And uh, primarily, the key thing was when they were volunteering, right, they wanted, they also need to be part of the solution. So they had to spend time to co-create. That was one of our primary requirements. So when they are young and they are able to relate to what is the stress the other students are going through, I think that made it a win-win for us. So we bought people who were uh, just entering university or just completed, who are willing to participate in this programs. So I think facilitators were the key for us. Could you give more details, maybe for the benefit of the students here, right? How a session has been so far from okay. your experience? Okay, for the session is, um, when we started, we wanted it to be very fluid, which means it, it has to be dynamic, it, it, people create everything, but then, uh, the, actually, the facilitators kind of grounded us. They said, we are targeting the lower secondary students. So parents have a lot of influence in whether they should come or not. So you have to have some definitive subjects. You have to have an end goal. And then how do we have a structure? So uh, let's start with how the students want to own this session. So what, what are their goals for the session? What do they want to do in subjects? What do they want to do extra? So they kind of define how the session structure should be. But again, we had a handbook of how the sessions should be conducted, which was co-developed with the youth volunteers as well. So, and every week we kept it still fluid. They could make some changes, but the end goals were also met. Yeah. Thanks for that. And um, it just occurred to me that sometimes the you have a, a, a theory of how things would work. And then, of course, you have, have to understand your operating context and kind of accommodate that. Uh, what do you feel... When I shared the original romantic version of the learning circles, it was with community. And one of the key barriers to that is that um, it's really hard to be able to feel like you can trust people to put your kids in all these people's homes, right? And so that's why we gravitated back towards a center-based model. And I just wanted to hear from all of you, um, what is the, the challenge then? If for community ownership, it seems like we have to trust the community more, but there are also very real uh, concerns of risk and accountability. 
was there ever anything, maybe uh, to backwards this way, was there any, uh, what are the considerations from Cinder's point of view? For us, the key thing was selling the concept of peer-to-peer -peer learning. People are so used to a regular structure. So what does peer-to-peer -peer learning mean? So should my kids spend some time in this? Is it a waste of time? So recruitment was a big challenge. So that is why we had to kind of uh, look into people. So it was more organic. While we ran through EDMs with our students, we were very clear that we couldn't approach the primary students because they're too young, nor the upper secondary students who were busy with their landmark exams. So we targeted very specifically the lower secondary students who do have uh, time. But again, students are so busy with their CCAs and things, so the time they spent on the learning circles was also limited. And we wanted to keep it year-long, but the feedback given was, let's keep it uh, sharp bite-sized. So six weeks, a break, six weeks. And uh, that helped uh, more uh, recruitment, actually, for so us. So these were the kids were, who were still doing tuition, yes. but they would do peer-to-peer -peer learning on the side to be safe, right? <laughs> and so, uh, also kind of similarly for giving circles, uh, there was a reliance on Shine and Minds to refer people. Because I re remember a conversation about how do you know who you are helping? They are verified as people who really need help. And so then the reliance on the SSA to refer was there. But I've always been thinking, could we not, could a community not identify somebody in need and form a circle? What do you think? Um, I think for the, for the circle, the family came to us because the social worker already did a first round of like checks to, to find that they're um, deserving. Um, it, it, it is comes as an important um, considering factor for some volunteers because we would really want to give our time and resources to deserving family. And also, um, the trust is not only just about the, the, the family that come to us des being deserving, but also the volunteers requiring to go to the family and visit them and you know, enter the family and knowing them, their personal life. Also, a concern on, on safety as well, you know, because you're inviting a lot of people into the, into the family. And of course, you know, uh, over time, we, we, we gain the trust and, and then friendships will form. And then when we go down, you know, it's a group of us and then you kind of observe one another. So the group concept really helps. And, and when you talk about the, the trusting and whether it is important, you know, to have the social service agency to kind of refer the families to us so that, you know, volunteers can trust that it's deserving, I think it's something very important so that we can better use our resources to help communities and families in need. So, yes. What about you, Santosh? Do you think circles, community circles can be formed without formal referrals? I think the root of the problem for me as I dug deeper uh, into the conversations of the caregiver is this. There is a cultural aversion or avoidance of negative emotions or negative events. So there's a cultural aversion to like loss, to grief, to setbacks in Singapore, I think. We train our citizens or our youths to acquire, attain, achieve or succeed. But I don't think we have that practice of training people to sit with setbacks, loss, failure, yeah. and the negative emotions that are associated with, with this uh, 
sad events. So the sitting with feelings of like, I'm sad, I, I, um, I am feeling lonely. Uh, and, and, and the reason why I'm saying this is one of our caregiver who was a civil servant, she would always go to her workplace in the civil service being negative, just having a lot of negative emotions and feelings in her mind. And <laughs> the alienation at work started when people said, no, you're too negative for me. And then people slowly started to uh, distance themselves away from her. Yeah. So the colleagues started to distance themselves because they didn't want that negativity to affect themselves. Yeah, and then I think her hardships and her troubles were just so difficult to bear that even like her friends and then slowly family members also started to distance themselves away. So I think culturally, right, I think uh, that emotional literacy, like teaching people to, to be okay with negative feelings and emotions, it's a learned skill. I'm learning that even at this age. Like I think I, I never learned it in primary school <laughs> to, to higher institutions, right? Uh, I, I felt like at the level of the consciousness or culture of our society, like this training was required so that students who are neurotypical, among, upon meeting someone who is not neurotypical, they, they are sensitized to that lived experience. They, they can empathize and they can sit with that, that feelings and emotions. Adults who are maybe not in such a precarious situation, can sit with and can hold space for a caregiver or person with special needs who's really struggling. Yeah. So I think it's really like a human being's capacity to hold space for another. But it, this is actually a mirror of one's own capacity to sit with one's own negative feelings and emotions. That was what I think I learned, yeah, which was valuable. There's a question about, similarly, about the uh, fundamental philosophical or worldviews of people, and is there a need to address that first? Does that hinder community involvement? I guess the person was asking about you know, a sense of entitlement that might hinder, but I, I suppose, generally speaking, if I held the worldview that school is for academic achievement, I will go for tuition. Why would I go peer-to-peer -peer learning when, of course, the teachers can teach me better? Or if I felt that, you know, why should I contribute to a person who needs help? Do we have the government and professional services to do that? Uh, do you think that that worldview needs to be addressed first? Or is doing it and then acquiring the values a better pathway? So I sit and convince you first that you do it, or you do and you learn along the way. Yeah, I think it's both the bottom and the bottom up and top down. So bottom up is what we did is in the community circles, we were actually creating a new culture, a new culture of shared values and of empathizing with one another and sitting with those negative feelings and helping one another to heal. That culture slowly will, will through your, your model of like um, virality, invade other spaces and, and just create more cultures. So that cultivation of like that ground up and, and that culture of like sitting with one another and offering emotional support, uh, social support was, was imp is important. But I think top down is also very important. And this is, this is exactly what I was trying to deal with when I was in EDB, which is to look at the economics of care work, care for other human beings, and also care for the environment. 
but also the economics of inclusion and cohesion, which I think uh, the neoclassical like, way of thinking right, does not address. Yeah, so the neoclassical way of looking at the economics of inclusion and, and, and care uh, uh, and cohesion right, does not value this kind of activities. So top-down, society also needs to shift. There is actually, my, my intuition, there is substantial economic value to cultivating and nurturing inclusion and cohesion amongst our youth. And the trade-off, what is the trade-off, right? So students spending less time academically, spending less time on your academics, trying to get better grades, instead spending more time with the with with members of other societies, the underprivileged or like other segments of society, that that trade-off, right, is 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 uh, I, I've kind of like intuitively worked out. It's worth it. You can actually economically gain from that. Now, Singapore has this desire to transition from a value-add economy to a value creation economy. Now, value creation economy requires innovation. You need to create things. Now, at the heart of innovation, it's sensitivity and empathy to needs to which you can develop solutions to solve problems of today. Where do you get that sensitivity and that empathy in your kids who will be your future entrepreneurs and value creators for the global economy when they are young in school? Yeah, when they cultivate that sensitivity with people who are not like them, yeah, people who are different. Yeah, and now there is a major case for a neurodiversity-affirming society. Actually, it's economically viable. So that shift top-down also can happen. If we change and move away from orthodox models or orthodox ways of economics yeah, to the less orthodox, like donut economics, sacred economics, when you make that shift at the top, then it can cause a ripple, but also ground up. Yeah. Um, I guess we're all like wired differently and of, of course there's a lot of uh, policies like you know you're saying like top down uh, this should the way things should go and that's the policy and that's the guideline at some extent or level yes that's important because the insights or the research show, shows that there's a gap you know that has to be filled and there's something that should be done and then when that happens then then it should go ground up because the solutions and how the problems should be solved should, comes from the, should come from the community because when the, the community, they know the problem, they have the solution, allow them to feel more engaged, allow them to share with you their solution because when the community gets the buy-in, when they have the solution that comes from them, they're more likely to feel engaged and they want to solve the issues. They want things to happen. They have the power to create a change because they understand the problem deeply and they have the solution. So when the community has an ownership and then they trust you know, themselves, among themselves, to, to, to solve the issues, then it, the solution can be more sustainable. It can be implemented a lot faster because the community, they want it. They want it to happen. They have a vested interest. So I guess there's no one answer, you know, whether it should be top down and bottoms up. I think they are both equally important. And, and of course, it's on a case-by-case basis, you know, based on the scenario. But I do believe that the community, they should 
be deeply involved in the solutioning process. They should be engaged. They should be consulted in order for change to, to happen. Yeah. yeah. Um, for us, right, uh, it kind of complements what we do. While MOE provides the core education efforts, community organizations like SINDA complement it. So we layer our solutions on top of what community does. But again, uh, the landscape has shifted. So now it's subject-based banding and lifelong learning. So the need to take ownership of learning is a must. So we hope through these pilots, uh, it should grow organically, but a community for community approach is quite important. So when we have the youth volunteers who come in, uh, make these young kids take interest in their learning, we hope to see the shift. Yeah. There's an um, interesting um, question about, well, some questions indicate the issue of bad behavior in the circles, right? So for example, you're giving money and you, you, you want to kind of be oppressive about how you should be using your money. That's one thing that often came up. And also about the question about professionalism. Do the circle volunteers and participants, do they act professionally? I mean, I think the general question is, what is the right behavior in, in these circles? And um, before I get them to, to lend their thoughts on how do you safeguard against bad behavior, uh, one of the original people who had thought about, you know, we were kind of bouncing ideas of giving circles, he cited Lily Watson, an Aborigin kind of uh, activist, and there was a quote that I can't remember exactly, but it was this, if you have come here to help me, then no thank you, but if your emancipation is bound up with mine, then we can work together. So don't come and help me, but you feel that your own freedom and your own liberty is bound up with my freedom and liberty that we work together. And I thought that was beautiful, which also made us think that, you know, there can be no specific rules which you can put in place to guard against that, but only guiding sensibilities. Uh, maybe to Santosh, your reflection. Bounded liberty by Leela Watson, that is an important principle or tenet of any uh, facilitation. Uh, and I think we, we, we stuck to that principle, like very... Um, quite seriously, yeah, but in not a serious manner. Um, and then the, the second one was relational equality. Like when we meet as a circle, it's not we coming here to support you, again, like to give support. Actually, we're all relating as equals. There's this whole idea of like distributive equality in society, right? You distribute the resources from those who have more to those who have less. But I think fundamentally, according to Elizabeth um, Anderson, it's important to have relational equality uh, as a supporting guide or foundation to distributive equality. Uh, so I think what really worked for us is when we came in, a lot of the people who were offering support were transformed and they received far more than they gave uh, to the caregiver. Yeah, I think uh, that transformation was uh, evident in all the uh, 14 volunteers that we have, <laughs> more so for the facilitator and Royce, Royce who was also helping me to facilitate. I think, yeah, we were, we were actually, we benefited more from, from, uh, from providing the support than yeah, uh, the caregiver themselves. I think that was evident. Uh, like for me, I, I learned so much. Uh, caregiver, the ninth caregiver, right? Uh, this is Peng An, she's a public figure. Peng, Ku Peng An. She runs Billberry Blue House, Blue, Billberry's Blue Lighthouse at Spectra Secondary, which is to actually nurture um, an education system that is actually inclusive. Uh, and, and I was just wowed by her level, her depth, 
her breadth of thinking. Yeah, and I like took notes from her, like literally from all her sharing on how to actually relate to another human being. I learned so much from her and I became a better facilitator as a result. And uh, yeah, I, I, there's just countless of examples of where I, I learned so much. Yeah. Suhan, any thoughts on bad behaviour <laughs> circles? <laughs> I, I guess there's no like one event or a campaign where everything is like 100% safe, you have all the good volunteers, you have all the good families. There's, there's bound to be some um, surprises where maybe you don't have the perfect volunteer with the perfect behaviour, but we shouldn't allow that fear to stop us from scaling out or creating more of such circle, as long as more good comes from such initiative, we shouldn't just have the fear that, oh, you know what, if uh, one volunteer uh, connected to the family and bad things happen, or what if another volunteer do something bad to another volunteer, I don't behave in a professional manner, I guess we need to balance that. As long as more good things happen, you know, we shouldn't allow that from stopping us to, to scale out this and, and, and widen the impact. There's going to be always bound to have very strange freak accident or one incident that makes you think that, oh, you know, we shouldn't have done this in the first place. Look, you know, what has happened. But I think we should look at it as a whole, that more good things happen because of this initiative. Don't allow the fear that something remote, the chance, you know, remote chance that something bad will happen to stop us from doing this. So that's, that's my personal sentiment. Yep. For us, uh, when our volunteers are onboarded, right, they are synthesized with uh, uh, how to deal with these families. So for in this case, in case of the youth, what happened is during the prototyping session, we had ran through these scenarios with them, saying that what if the student approaches you and also they had this circle of support beyond the sessions. So they could always check in with the staff and we always had one of the staff kind of hovering around, so it kind of helped. So they had that circle of support, so they were able to do what they set out to do effectively. Um, some of the questions are quite interesting and it's also issues that we are grappling with. Uh, I think some circles are formed and it's a stable membership and it goes on for a year and then it closes. So people ask, how do you close circles? But also there's the question of, do you organically, let's say people drop out, you know, they get tired, they don't show up. Do you feel it's okay to add new people to the circle or do you feel that it takes away from the integrity or the ties that are already there? What do you think? You have to be adaptable. So I started with, uh, I mean, before I, I had 11 caregivers, before Community Circle started officially, two dropped out because they said, uh, I want volunteers to spend time with my children. Uh, I don't want you to come and gather around my home. So don't waste my time. So those two dropped out. Yeah. And then we had like a, a starting point of like uh, nine, right? Uh, along the journey, I think out of the nine, six pushed through to the finishing line at the end of the one-year pilot, but three also dropped out. I'll just share the reasons for the dropping out for the three out of the nine. Uh, one of the camp giver, her ambitions were just uh, enormous. She wanted to set up a car washing business uh, for her child. And uh, 
we we just couldn't uh, we we were not up to the task. Like it was quite monumental, too monumental, uh, to the point that we just couldn't do it. And she, I think uh, as the circle meetings went by, uh, she grew frustrated, and then she said, like, yeah, it's not worth it. It's, there's nothing in it for me. I I rather not continue. S the second caregiver was relatively affluent. Uh, she she wanted just a befriender for her child. And we did that. We went for hikes with a child and we spent time with a child. But she realized that the, the, the structural support, the state support was really lacking for persons with special needs or caregivers. So she left Singapore entirely and she went to California. Yeah, so that, that was one caregiver who just left in the middle. Yeah, the third one, uh, she... Uh, she, it was great. We were vibing very well, and like there were just lots of conflicts, and she in her family. So we provided that support. Uh, we were like good friends. We went for walks together. We 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 you know we we journeyed through life together. But over time, she became very busy, and then uh, she just didn't respond to our WhatsApp messages. And then we classified this as a circle that moved from synchronous circle meetings to asynchronous meetings. So you have to be just very dynamic and adapt to the life stages and conditions of the caregivers, which is quite precarious. And I mean, yeah, so we have to, yeah, I mean, as a result of the journey, I was just taking note of the different ways in which we can design circles, and I took note of 26 parameters. So there are 26 ways in which, you know, I put the, make a list, because what we want to do is we want to scale this model, right? We want to develop a guidebook. Yeah, so circles can't be just convened in one way. They are like, you know, 26 different parameters in which you can toggle on and off and switch and design circles in a customized, in a way that's customized to meet the needs of the caregiver. Yeah, so I think that's one thing. I, I really like the point that there are no bad actors, like nothing is bad. Yeah, um, there are some circles in which I and our assistant, we speak more than a caregiver, and the caregiver just listen. Yeah, and I was like quite frustrated when one of the, 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 care, um, the volunteers was speaking more than the caregiver, uh, taking out a lot of space and time. So I was like, can you, <laughs> you know, can you wrap up quietly? Yeah, but, but actually, if you just sit with it, you know, it's not really necessarily bad. Actually, you notice the caregiver is listening and the caregiver is offering support. And the caregiver feels more empowered to be a provider of support to a volunteer rather than a recipient. So it is all these dynamics and you have to like really flow very organically and uh, yeah, let go of your preconceived, yeah, <laughs> this is how it should be. And yeah, that, that letting go is a lot of inner work. I, I really echo what Sancho said. So our circle is like quite open. We actually uh, surprise ourselves with our volunteers and you know, the core team bringing in new resources and new people because along the way, uh, the, the needs of the, of the um, beneficiary changes. The family will have different needs you know, along the way, requiring new resources, new talents. And, and I think it's when we keep an open mind to allowing new families. There's also new energy, new resources, you know. And, and of course, you know, as Santos experienced, like some of the volunteers, because of the changes in their life, they may, they may drop out. And, and so allowing new volunteers to, to come in, it's essentially a breath of fresh air. And, and the family can receive help in, in, in different ways, you know, that, that we ever imagined. So for us, our circle, we welcome new volunteers to join 
and to help the families, you know, in a different way. So yeah, that's our experience. For us, uh, we still want to keep our circles open. Uh, we just started in September, so it's kind of tied back to the school year as well. So uh, the feedback we received from our uh, participants was uh, that start the circles early so that it kind of aligns with the school term. So if you start it early, at least they have this uh, time and space to develop and create their programs. So the takeaway for us was start it early, yeah. Um, we're running out of time, so I was hoping that each of you can leave the audience with the most lasting learning or impression you have of your experience so far. A bit unfair for you because it just started, but maybe Anandita, and you and Santosh. For us, the most rewarding experience was the time to uh, sit back and listen to what the students themselves want for their learning. Because they're so used to a regular system, uh, it is good for us to listen and uh, kind of understand what is from their perspective learning is. So that makes a huge difference for us, for our program also. Okay, actually the giving circle, we also learned that, you know, we can be receiving circle. The reason is because the family, uh, Madam Chang, you know, the, 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 the mother of the family, when, when we wanted to visit her, she ended up like cooking for us and buying drinks for us. And then one of the volunteers was quite concerned and said, you know, is it okay she's spending money to buy food for us or to cook for us? I said, you know, when we receive what she's offering, we're giving the power back to her. And so when she wants to give us drinks or food, we, we receive it, we accept it, we show gratitude, we give the power back to her. And so don't say no, you know, when the receiving families or receiving party wants to do something for you. It can be a small gesture, a packet of rice, a packet of food. Accept it. Give them the joy. Give them the power. Give them back the joy of serving you as much as you receive the joy of giving and helping them. Allow them a chance to do something back for you. And I think that's a lesson that, you know, I've really learned along the way, many, many years ago, and I've, I would like to impart this to the new volunteers. Yeah. Uh, I would like, uh, this is advocacy for the caregivers. So uh, I would like state-funded, caregiver-led, community-supported uh, like initiatives. Uh, so the caregivers will be the deciders. They will decide how the funds should be allocated because they know their situation best. Uh, I think that's really important. So no intermediaries to do means testing or to <laughs> validate whether they deserve the support or not. No, get away with, do away with the intermediaries. I think it needs to go directly to the caregivers. The caregivers are geniuses. Like, there's just so much ingenuity. There's so much talent to be unlocked if you just give them the funds and you let them you let them loose, you know, let them run amok. And yeah, they will surprise you. They will, yeah, it's, it's just amazing group of people. Uh, I think we just need to like trust them. Yeah. Um, there's another recommendation for advocacy again, a gradated approach to fully inclusive schools in Singapore. So not fully inclusive schools, let's say fully inclusive schools in let's say 2050. Yeah, but a slow gradated approach to getting there. Yeah, a huge reason why we're not getting volunteers is because uh, lack of intermingling and intermixing between neurotypical kids and neuroatypical kids, yeah, slash adults. 
Yeah, and I think uh, that needs to happen uh, as much as possible. Despite being small, we are quite stratified. <laughs> yeah, so I think that intermixing needs to happen. Uh, I've outlined a, a strategy to get to that vision of fully inclusive schools and the gradations, the milestones that we need to achieve. So this is one of the 15 recommendations that we have put together on behalf of our 11 caregivers. The 15 recommendations are bucketed under five different teams. Uh, they're all on our website. We have a website uh, for advocacy. On our website, we have, uh, we have the caregiver profiles, their needs yeah, uh, for support. So if anyone would like to offer support, uh, you can, you know, contact me. Yeah. So those are like some of the things that we have uh, we have done. SG enablers in the house, they might be interested and you can chat with them. But can I get a round of applause for our speakers for sharing with us? Thank you so much.